Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for the blessing of this Lord's Day, this day that is set aside uh, for your people, that we might rest from our labors and that we might also look to the rest that we have in Christ as we assemble as your people. As you have commanded us to worship you on this day, to set it apart as unlike any other day, so also we know that what you have commanded is for our good and for your glory. And so we thank you for the blessing that you know what is best for us even when we don't know what is best for us. And we pray today that as we have assembled on this Lord's Day, that as we look to your word in this particular study, that you would guide us, that you would direct us, and that you would teach us, your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are on to a new uh, study um, originally, in looking at this in, in alphabetical order, uh, I had titled this uh, Love and the Home, uh, but uh, after narrowing it down and working through uh, the Proverbs, perhaps you would say culling the study, uh, what I really wanted to do is look at these particular Proverbs uh, purely in the context of the home. And to be, sh- to, to be clear, uh, not Every one of these Proverbs that we look at today and in the coming weeks is going to be explicitly about the home. But I think that what you will find, uh, as I have, have, have grouped them or organized them, that they, they will either be explicitly about the home or they can be applied within the home. And so I think that they're uh, worthy of our attention and study as well. But that's going to be uh, the, the focus for today and in the coming weeks is the study of what does the Proverbs say about the home or what I've titled uh, the godly home. And as we think about this, uh, w- let's start with just definitions. When, when I say the home, what, what do I mean by that? How would we define as Christians, how would we define the home? Okay, a good, good way to put it in, in summary would be the, the nuclear family. And by that, you're, you're referring to uh, a father, a mother, and children, right? Okay. How else would, I, I think that's a valid definition, how else might we define the, the home? Okay, so by saying home, we're, we're implying that within that, it's not merely structure, but there's also love there as well. What else? Security, Security within the home. We feel safe within uh, the, 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 the nuclear family or, or the home environment, the love that we experience, so there's security there. What else do we mean by home? Okay. If, if we all invited to your house today, we'd all be, uh, yeah, yeah. But, but home does, it, it expands, that's right, it expands out, outside of uh, necessarily biological relations and, and so forth. That's right, that's right. Anything else? So when the Proverbs talks about the home, it is typically, 
going to refer to it within how Randy began. It is typically going to refer to it as the nuclear family. Now, to be clear, um, that does not mean that a home, for example, uh, of a husband and wife without children is not a family. That, in fact, is a family and is included here. It does not mean that, for example, a single mom raising children in the home or a single dad raising children in the home, that that also is not the home. In fact, it, it is. And so I think what we, we need to understand is to accept the Proverbs, as I have said to you before, as they are written, within the culture that they are written, uh, within uh, the presumed audience that they are written, but we must not leave them there. We must also bring them and apply them within the modern context, which is what we're doing in this class as we look at that. But there are <clears throat> certain characteristics of the home that the Proverbs has much to say about, certain characteristics that we should glean from to understand. And, and this, incidentally, uh, applies to... Um, <clears throat> Uh, whether no children, young children, older children, but in essence what you're going to find is that it's, it's really within the confines of that house, whether there's a house or not, that becomes a home uh, as we'll see. And, and, and let me give you a, a, a great example. Um, one of the characteristics of a godly home is righteousness. righteousness. Now, as, as Hilda said just a second ago, now there can be chaos in the home, uh, and that doesn't negate it from being a home. And furthermore, there can be unrighteousness in a home, and that doesn't negate it from being a home as well. But in terms of the ideal of that which as God has designed it, the, the ideal is that there is righteousness in the home. Look at Proverbs 33, 30, uh, rather 333. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so typically in the Proverbs, in wisdom literature, it's not talking about the, the Protestant doctrine of justification. Yeah, so, so typically. Now, there can, and, 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 and actually in, in my sermon today, I'm not drawing, or Paul's not drawing from the Proverbs, he's drawing from the Psalms. So, so the New Testament writers can take Old Testament Scripture and they can take it out of what we would call context and they can apply it redemptively um, but as far as our study is concerned, A, we're not apostles. B, we want to be very careful not to read into the Proverbs something that's not there. And 99.99999% of the time, when the Proverbs is talking uh, about righteousness, it's talking about ethical living. Yeah, just, I mean, whether someone believes in Yahweh, for example, in, in the context of Proverbs, or, or whether they're a pagan, that righteousness is righteousness. It's sort of back to the study that we did on truth. You may recall that I said all truth is God's truth. Even if that truth is contained within a world and an environment that does not know God, does not know Christ, has no belief whatsoever, if it's truth then it's God's truth because God is, is truth. Same thing in this case would be ethics. Yeah. 
So when it says the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, uh, again, the opposite of righteousness theoretically, since this is a proverb, the poet has designed this as a comparison and contrast. We're supposed to see the first clause as in contrast to the second clause, but he blesses, he doesn't curse, the dwelling, not the house, of the righteous, not the wicked. So you can see how this is laid out. So the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. The poet, the sage, is intentionally creating this contrast. So we will compare the two. And it is the Lord who blesses the dwelling of the righteous, meaning the home, the house, the dwelling place of the family is blessed by virtue of righteous behavior. And if you think about this, just in terms to to, to J.D.'s point of of making the distinction between uh, the imputed righteousness of Christ and just ethics, um, we know this to be true, don't we? we? We know that a home that is characterized by ethical behavior, by righteous living, by those who will behave in a righteous way, we know that we see the Lord's blessing upon that house. I mean, think about it this way. If you live in a neighborhood and you have a neighbor who is known by their righteous behavior, by their ethical behavior, you probably are not going to have a problem lending them a tool, for example, from your garage. But if you have a neighbor who is known, is characterized by their wickedness, by their vile behavior, by their unrighteousness, you're going to think twice about it, aren't you? But of course, the sage then adds to this in terms of a covenantal perspective, the Lord's blessing upon that house, upon that home. Or for example, look at Proverbs 12, 7. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Now, the idea here of the wicked are overthrown and are no more is the idea of justice, right? That there is true justice. Sometimes in our timeline, not God's timeline, in our timeline, we cry out, I don't see any justice. But in God's timeline, there is always justice. And of course, in the perfect world of the proverb writer here, he's saying that, According to God's timeline, the wicked will be overcome. There will, in fact, one day be righteous, uh, I mean, justice. But the second clause of that says, and again, note here the inclusion of the word house, the house of the righteous will stand. What does that mean, the righteous? It's a figurative statement, right? Uh, It could be implying to a a literal house, but more than likely it's, it's not. It's a figurative statement. What does that figurative statement mean? The house of the righteous will stand. What does that mean? And incidentally, we're helped in contrast to the previous clause, overthrown. We're supposed to see a, a contrast between overthrown and stand. 
That's exactly right. It's, it's a figurative statement meaning that the house of the righteous will persevere. When justice comes and justice will come, the, the, over, the, the wicked will be overthrown and that the righteous will in fact persevere as God is their protector. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Build on that foundation of good, solid, ethical behavior. That's right. Proverbs 14, 11, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Now, pause there for just a second, because many of you are saying at this point, okay, the writer of the Proverbs is saying the same thing. And... It's true. There, there is a sense of redundancy here of what the sage is teaching. But I want you to notice the, the, the poetic distinction. Notice, no longer it is it the house or the dwelling, but who here has the house? Yeah. The, the, the wicked have, have the house. And again, we understand that as a figurative statement, but... To let that figurativism go ahead and play itself out, what, what does, the, what does the, the, the house imply? The house implies stability. The house implies a fixed location. The house implies where, well, I mean, most of us today came from somewhere, a dwelling place that was fixed and safe. Air conditioner was probably running this morning, probably felt pretty good, and a sense of stability. How about a tent? What's implied with a tent? Yes, yeah, yeah. Larry says it's temporary. It's like an it's like an RV, uh, right? It 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 can. There's still a sense of stability there, right? But it's not fixed. This is not where you walk and go. That's my house. Oh wait, it's an RV. It was here yesterday. It's not here today, right? So there's there's this idea, and what the what the the Sage is doing here is he's saying there can be the picture of the wicked that everything is stable, everything is good. It's like the psalmist cries out, and I'm paraphrasing, I look around and why do I see that the wicked are flourishing? Why do I see that they're doing so well? I'm disheartened, God. Because I see that the wicked are prospering and so forth and so on. But what the proverb is doing is, of course, not taking us to that cry of lamentation, but telling us, according to God's timeline, here's how it is. You may see something that appears in which the wicked have stability or security or everything is going according to their plan and then what happens? According to God's justice, they're destroyed. The wicked will be destroyed. But the tent of the upright will flourish. Again, though it's temporary, though it is not a house, nevertheless, the Lord will bless it. And then finally, Proverbs 15, 6, In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Once again, the poetic structure of this proverb, notice it's a comparison and contrast. We're starting out, first of all, talking about the house of the righteous. We've heard this before, right? The house of the righteous compared to what? The wicked. We don't know about their house or anything, but we see clearly the distinction here. We know the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. Hmm. What does that mean? 
the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. And I want to make sure we understand this before we move to the second clause. Good stuff. Could mean, Larry said could mean a lot of things. A lot of, it, it, it's, it's favorable, if, if anything, right? So remember, so the Proverbs aren't, starts with a P, ends in a Ramesses, right? Proverbs are not promises. So it doesn't mean that righteous behavior means that you're going to have this beautiful home with all sorts of treasures. <clears throat> Bad way to interpret Scripture. What it does mean is there is benefit to righteous behavior. In fact, and now everybody knows this example, even a home that we wouldn't consider to be full of treasures, nevertheless, someone who is consistently righteous in their living, someone who doesn't live in the path of the wicked, someone who does live in an ethical way in dealing in love and fellowship with their neighbor, so forth and so on, what tends to follow those kind of people? Yeah. So when I was business, we called it good luck, right? Yeah. But because we're here on Sunday morning in his church, we're going to use the word blessing, right? So good luck follows them. Blessings follow them. Why? Think about it. This is incidentally what, what we're thinking about, what we're discussing here is not just for Sunday school. This is something that every human being, every human being must understand. God has designed the world. We get that, right? God has designed the world in such a way that it works this way. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have unbelieving friends who have no interest in the gospel, have no interest in coming to church, and yet they live moral, up, uh, ethically approved lives? And how many of those you see, they, have, they raise their children, they have a good household, what they do seems to flourish. Things go well for them. I, I've got friends like that. Yeah. yeah. I know evangelicalism paints a different picture, uh, but it's false. It, this is how God designed it. Now, we do desire that they believe the gospel because this world is not just it. There is more to come. This is a dress rehearsal, right? And so in terms of their eternal soul, we do desire that they believe the gospel. We do desire that they come in right fellowship with the church. We do desire that they have a deeper relationship with another human being that can only come through a relationship with Christ. But we should not stand back and scratch our head and go, wow, I don't understand why that unbeliever is just flourishing. Well, it must be the devil. No, it's not. It's God. God blesses His design. How he designed it is the way it works. And it's always going to work this way. It's just like the sun. It's just like the way that we can count on the seasons. It's just like the seed that we put in the ground, so forth and so on. It's the way God had designed it. So, yes. Oh, <laughs> go ahead. No, no, J.D. was behind you, but he's now deferring to you. Yeah. Something about age before beauty. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, too, we've got to remember, that. so that's a great point. Uh, I think what we have to remember is, is the Proverbs are written in what we would call static conditions. They're, they're written in such a way there is a clear distinction between black and white, we might say. Now, I don't know about your life, but in my life, it, those things in my life that are black and white, like, I'm, I don't encounter them very often. Most of the life that I live in, anyway, is like this huge amount of gray. And so I have to pray for discernment and wisdom and working my way through all of these gray areas. But the Proverbs, the the, the sage is writing in a static way to where when we see the clear distinction between black and white, it teaches us. Now, we can't leave it there. What we have to do is we have to take the black and white of the Proverbs and then take it into the gray world in which the real world is and learn to apply it. And, and that's true wisdom, isn't it? The truth of the, of the Proverbs applied is, is wisdom. But, and, and incidentally, on your point, Randy, you know, I, I typically... So, for example, someone said... This has been several months ago, but they, they said... Um, or I heard them say, I didn't respond to it. They said, you know that person, they're just wicked. And, um, and it was, it was a, a, a national personality uh, that I, you'd have to you know, watch the boob tube to see, I suppose. It wasn't anybody local, so I'm assuming there are no wicked people locally. But you know, you know that person's wicked. And, and I thought to myself, how do you know? I mean, like, y'all been hanging out? spend some time together, you know? I mean, what, I don't, how'd you come to terms with that? And, and, and quite, quite candidly, I don't know a lot of, to your point, I don't know a lot of wicked people, but, but I do know people that are entangled with unrighteous behavior. And I know that the proverb tells me that in the black and white static description, there, there is true wickedness and there is true righteousness. And I know as far as, as my own ethical behavior, I want to behave in a not wicked way, a righteous way. Yeah, J.D.? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, then, and, and that's a good point. For the video's sake, I'll repeat what, what JD said. Is he, he said that because we live in a highly materialistic society, we tend to equate treasure, as it is here, or other, other blessings like that in a, in a material way, in a wealth, in a sense of, of wealth, and that's not always the case. 
And, that, and that's exactly right. And that goes all the way back to the very first study we did in, in the Proverbs is we need to understand when we're dealing with the poetry of the Proverbs that, that most of it is figurative. And so we're going to need to let, we're, we're going to need to, to a certain extent, and we've got to be careful here, but to a certain extent we've got to escape from our over-literalist tendencies and, and learn how to apply it. Because a, a, a man who has uh, barely two quarters to rub together may be blessed richly in his family, for example. I mean, you know, we've we've talked about this. I mean, one of the great blessings of of my life is not my bank account. It's the fact that all of my children have professed faith in Christ. That is is an abundance of wealth that that I rejoice in regardless of what my net worth is. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we can all look and know how God seems just blesses the Jewish people. But I think a lot of it is their upright living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I definitely believe, since I'm not a dispensationalist, I totally believe it has to do with their behavior, uh, not some sort of, uh, you know, whatever, end-time stuff. So, yeah, a- absolutely, it has to, has to do with, with their, their moral behavior. Incidentally, on that point, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now go back to what J.D. was asking at, at, at the beginning, I think that it's also important for us to understand that as Christians, um, we... We understand that we see Scripture through the lens of the gospel. Uh, so, so we look to the Proverbs and we say, Aha, I see what the sage is saying here. Um, he, is, he is saying that, that you know, righteous behavior, good. Wicked behavior, bad. I, I get it. We also see that the Lord blesses righteous behavior and justice falls upon uh, uh, wicked behavior, so forth and so on. But I think we also need to understand, to your point, is that we're not seeing it as a means of a right standing with God. And, and that's, that's, of course, the gospel. The simplicity of the gospel is, is that, that there's nothing righteous in me. And so, therefore... I need to, as J.D. brought up, I need someone else's righteousness because I'm not perfect. And so by faith and believing in Christ, I receive His righteousness and a right standing with God. Now, the problem occurs, and I know it doesn't occur with any of you, but the problem occurs, especially in our age in which we live, of easy believism where... By taking our right standing with God, we should then desire to do what? To live as righteously as we are in our right standing with God. And unfortunately, in the age in which we live, this oftentimes gets divorced. 
It gets separated as in, well, everything's okay. I have a right standing with God. And so, you know, I don't need to worry about going to church. I just I bought a Christian book a couple of years ago. I'm going to nibble on that. And, you know, I cheated on my taxes. But I'm righteous before God. Why am I worried about it? And, 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 and you add it on. And all of a sudden, you get this really whacked out understanding of the gospel that is never reconciled with Scripture. And so I think to, to your point, Indeed, there are ethical people. They are blessed by virtue of it. But we as Christians look at it very differently. We look at it through the lens of the gospel. Our righteous behavior is through what Christ has done, not in place of what Christ has done. Again, many sermon. I'll now get off my soapbox. Second thing for us to look at is a godly home is characterized by love. And I think it was Hilda that said that at the, at the very uh, beginning. When I think of home, I think of love. Well, look at this. Proverbs fifteen seventeen. Better is a dinner of bitter herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. <laughs> I mean, this is a great proverb. I mean, the, look, look, look at the picture here. So for, first of all, it, it's not a great dinner. It's not a steak dinner. It's what? Bitter herbs. Yeah, who wants that? It's, 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 a, it's a meek dinner. There's not much there. It isn't tasty either. But what is the sage teaching us here? What is the sage teaching us here? Better is a, a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Yeah. It's better all the way around. Who who wants a five star dinner when you're sitting around the table and hatred's one of the uh, persons at the table? Huh? Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, Larry said is is bitter herbs aren't so bad when love is at, at the table. And, and again, we, we all understand this. You think about it in terms of, 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 of the home, uh, is that, that when there is real love there, it really doesn't matter what's on the menu. Now, if it is the fattened ox, all the better, right? Uh, but in general, the point is, is, is that love is superior to our circumstances. Proverbs 17, 9, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Again, this is one of the Proverbs that I realize the home's not explicitly listed here. I have incorporated it in here uh, for us to, to, to consider it in the context of the home. But what's the general teaching of this proverb? Whoever covers an offense seeks love. Well, what does it mean to cover an offense? Okay, so what's an offense? We'll break this down even further. What's an offense? Okay, so somebody's wronged you, right? And we're going to presume because of the black and white static nature of the proverb, it's legitimate. You've legitimately been wronged or someone has 
legitimately wronged someone else, right? So, what does it mean then to cover an offense? Yeah, yeah. Don't try to retaliate. Don't pick a bone about it. Somebody said something over here. Yeah, just let it go. Yeah, yeah. To cover something. Fascinatingly enough, when you think of of letting something go, you don't think of it as actively covering something, but to a certain extent, you 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 are right. So you know, it's it's one of those things where all of us have had things said to us that are offensive, and. Get ordained as a pastor, and it, it'll increase, right? I mean, it's just, it's just crazy, uh, the things that people say. But, but people are going to say offensive things to you. And, and so w- what do we do with it? Well, you can harbor it. You can hold on to it. You can pick a fight. Or to your point, you can retaliate. Isn't that fun, right? You can retaliate, or you can do what? You can cover it over with love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. What does that mean? Do you know what he did to her? You don't? Oh, let's talk. <laughs> right? Let, 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 let's, let's stir this up a little bit. Right? So it's a repetition of the offense, presumably of the offense that's in the first part of that clause. Number three, forgiveness. Now, I've not elaborated on this because we've actually already studied this topic um, earlier. So I I don't want to to repeat many of the Proverbs we've already looked at. uh, But there's a a similar, uh, similar language here. Hatred stirs up strife. But love, here's that word again, covers all offenses. What does it mean? So, so hatred, again, in the figurative language of the Proverbs, hatred is now personified, right? I mean, I was joking just a minute ago, there's hatred sitting at your table, but that's the language of the Proverbs. So, so there he is, he's sitting at your table, hatred is personified, and what does hatred do best? Maybe not best, but certainly well. What does he do? Well, according to the Proverbs, he does what? Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? So, in the language of the Proverbs, also what we find is you can look at them in reverse, and oftentimes we'll also see a truth. Flip that. Strife is... Hatred. Strife is a form of hatred. Isn't that fascinating? Think on that for just a little bit. You hear this in the church, not this church, uh, by the way, but but you will hear this, for example, in our denomination. uh, I just love the church. Coming out of the mouth of someone who's famous for causing strife in the church. Like, someone teach you that? Is that like a memorized phrase you keep on a card to keep it? Because, man, I, I I don't see that. I'm not, I, I, I'm not picking up on that. Strife is a form of hatred. So, hatred stirs up strife. But note also, 
love is personified. Love is personified as here. And what does Mr. or Mrs. Love do? There's that word again. Covers. Covers over as if you are burying it and the, the dirt is spread over that offense. Love covers offenses. In general, the idea that the, the sage is conveying is that of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a trait of the godly home. 